The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, The passage today is in Luke chapter 10. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 815. And once you've found that in your copy of Scripture, if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's Word, that would be great. We're going to start in Luke chapter 10 and go verses 1 through 16. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum... Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we are continuing our studies through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we find ourselves chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, as you just heard. Sermon titled this morning, we're just simply going to call Proclaiming the Savior. If you remember that we talked last week, this big middle chunk of Luke's gospel uh, talks a lot about discipleship. That is its focus. Um, And what we're learning here in this first of four sections um, is this idea of what does it look like for disciples to proclaim the kingdom of the Savior. And so we're going to learn specifically what does this look like. Hopefully there's a measure of these verses sound have have sort of the faint aroma of familiarity, and it's because they do, because it wasn't too long ago, a couple weeks ago, in fact, that we were preaching Matthew's equivalent of these these very verses. So there will be some measure of overlap um, here, um, but uh, it never hurts to have something repeated to us. Amen? I am the king of needing things repeated to me. Um, You can probably ask my wife for that if you want verification, Um, but I'm just going to trust that just as much as I need to have things repeated, you do too. And so this is what we're going to see this morning. The main idea comes down to this. This is idea of missionary disciples, missionary disciples, disciples who are missionaries. 
You're going to hear me say in a couple of moments, this overlaps with the phrase that we were using a couple of weeks ago when we were in Matthew's equivalent of these verses, and we were using that phrase, compassionate laborers. Do you remember that? Compassionate laborers are missionary disciples. Missionary disciples are compassionate laborers. That's the overlap of what we're going to see here today. And so the main idea comes down to this. What do missionary disciples do? They proclaim the Savior. And as we saw on the lips of Jesus, the reason why we proclaim the Savior, the reason why we go to place to place, house to house, neighbor to neighbor, individual to individual, saying, peace be to you, is because the consequences of gospel unbelief are eternal. To hear the gospel, to remain unbelieving in regard to the peace that can be found with God through Christ, there's eternal, real, awful consequences that come as a result. And so missionary disciples proclaim the Savior because the consequences of gospel unbelief are eternal. And so Jesus is speaking to 72 ordinary missionary disciples. We have no clue who they are. Nameless men, women in the crowd going out, telling others about Jesus. And what we learn here is a little bit about what it looks like to proclaim the Savior's kingdom. And so that's my hope. And that's what I'm going to pray for right now. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to use me in this particular way to articulate the scriptures. And I ask uh, for you to pray as well, uh, that the Holy Spirit would uh, cause your hearts and minds to be alert, uh, to receive the word, um, and then that we'd be changed by the word. That's what we're here for, yeah? Yeah. Like, surely we're not here just because you just have nothing else better than do than listen to me bloviate for 40, 45 minutes. If that's why you're here, we really all just need to pack it up and leave. I've got better things to do than to listen to me talk for 40 minutes. But if it's true that we can hear God speak to us through his word, and if it's true that you can encounter the living God today as the Holy Spirit empowers the preaching of his word, that's worthy of getting up on a Sunday morning. Amen? And that's why we're here. We're not here to hear me. We're here to hear God speak to us, his people, to deepen us into our relationship with him and to learn what it means to follow him. So let's pray to that endeavor. Amen? Father, for your glory, Christ, for the spread of your gospel, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to empower this time. Tune our hearts to see the Christ that we desperately need. We are weak. We are dependent. We need you. Spirit, do what you love to do. There is a single, solitary person who is worthy to be set in the center of the limelight. The one who is worthy to receive all worship, glory, honor, and praise forever and ever. And that's Jesus. Holy Spirit, the scriptures reveal your great delight and setting the limelight on Christ. And so I'm asking that you would do that through me today as I seek to exercise a gift that even you've given me so that I can 
be set aside as it were and to point to the Lord Jesus Christ and the implication of following our Savior whose face was set to Jerusalem. Spirit empower this time with the gospel of Christ to be magnified in our hearts and minds so that we would go out and be proclaimers of the Savior. Jesus, it's in your name I ask these things. Amen. If you remember, we stated this last week, there's this big middle chunk of Luke's gospel, basically the last half of chapter 9, which runs all the way through to the front half of chapter 19. It's a big chunk. It's just all about discipleship. Luke is helping us to see if this is who the Savior is. He is the Christ of God, and this is what he's going to do when he goes to the cross. What are the implications for men, women like you and like me, who follow this kind of Savior? You saw in the Slack post, I've said there's four distinct movements, distinct sections to this middle chunk, and each section seeks to answer what it means to deny self, to take up cross daily, and to follow the Savior who has set his face to go to Jerusalem. Remember, why is he going to Jerusalem? He's going there to die. He's going there to suffer. He's going there to be rejected. He's going there to be crucified. He's going there to die, be buried, and then to burst out of the grave three days later. This is why his face is set to Jerusalem. And so Luke says, Theophilus, and subsequently you and me, I want you to be certain about what this means for you, what it means for me on a Monday morning in March, tomorrow morning when we wake up. And so what Luke has done is he has marked out, he's given us these four sections, and he gives us little verbal clues along the way to let us know, hey, here's a section, and it has a theme, and then he goes and says, hey, here's another section, and it has its own discipleship theme, and the way he marks out each section is this. He says, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, don't forget this, and then right behind those verses, there's usually someone asking some type of question. And it's that question and Jesus' response to it that then gives us the theme of that particular section. So the section before us began back in chapter 9, verse 51. You find that very travel reference when Luke tells us in 9.51, the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up and notice he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's traveling in this direction. And then skip down a couple of verses into chapter 9, verse 54, where if you remember, messengers went ahead of Jesus into Samaria. Those Samaritans rejected Jesus. James and John then ask this question, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume these Samaritans? Question mark. What was Jesus' response? Heck yeah, I was waiting for you guys to ask this. We could use a little bit more of fire and brimstone. That's not what he says. He rebukes them. Jesus rebukes them. And what you need to know is that for this first section, this traveling to Jerusalem verbal clue with the question on the lips of James and John, it's helping us understand that the rebuke from Jesus is helping us understand what this first section is about. And this first section, according to Jesus' rebuke, indicates that his going to Jerusalem is not a judgment mission. His going to Jerusalem is a salvation mission. It's not a call down fire from heaven mission, but it's a I'm going to go and be killed and rise from the dead for the forgiveness of sins type of mission. 
Therefore, James and John, in answer to your question and any other disciples reading these words subsequent beyond you guys, anyone else who follows me, what you need to know is this. In light of me and my face set to Jerusalem being a salvation mission, being a we're trying, we're going to go so that we can see the kingdom um, enlarge, we're going so that many can be harvested and reaped into the kingdom, your call to follow me who's Jerusalem mission is a salvation mission is not to go and call down judgment on people, but your call is to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. We saw that in verse 60 last week. That's your call in following me whose face is set to Jerusalem. Now, there's going to come a day when King Jesus comes back in judgment. You can go to Revelation 19 if you want to see the king of kings, tattoos on thigh, sword coming out of mouth. There's a day when Jesus is going to come back and judge as the king of all kings, but it wasn't this first go round. And that's the clue about what it means to follow Jesus. We're not to go out and call down fire and brimstone. We're to go out and invite people to know the blessings and the peace that they can have with God because their sins have been forgiven by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, compassionate laborers who work the Lord's harvest are missionary disciples who proclaim the Savior's kingdom. And as Jesus will shepherd us to see here, as we get to, in a sense, sort of peek over the shoulder of Jesus and eavesdrop on how he's calling these 72 everyday disciples to go out and proclaim his mission, we learn something about what we are called to do in our everyday lives. Jesus is shepherding the 72, and subsequently he's shepherding you, and he's shepherding me right now on why we go and proclaim the Savior's kingdom. Why? It's because Jesus knows the consequences of gospel unbelief are eternal. Therefore, Luke says, in a sense, pay attention, Theophilus, and pay attention, you and me, because what we need to notice here, first point number one is this, the actions of missionary disciples. Just what are the actions of missionary disciples. What are missionary disciples? Compassionate laborers in the harvest. Like what's the ebb and flow? What's the, what's the rhythms? What's the normal things that we are to be marked out by? We can see this starting there in verse 1. You can look in your copy of Scripture. Notice Luke writes, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. They went out two by two. Where did they go? They went into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Notice that the connecting point, a good way to read your Bible is to always begin by asking the question of a C, the C question, context. It's always good to ask, like, why does chapter 10 come after chapter 9? It's not just merely because number 10 follows the number 9, but in the writing and the way Luke wrote it, there's a reason why. And I think the connecting point between Jesus' interaction with the three would-be disciples that we saw last week and the sending of these 72 disciples that are here before us is this. It seems that Jesus was recruiting for this mission, right? Sent messengers into Samaria. Some, or they denied him. They did not receive him. 
That's what Luke says there. Why did they not receive them? Because Jesus' face was set to Jerusalem. People started to come to Jesus. I'm going to follow you wherever I go or wherever you go. And then Jesus specifically is looking at people and saying, I'm calling you to follow me. But it was excuse and it was enthusiasm that was maybe not so much enthusiasm. It was Mr. Yeah, but, but I think what Jesus knows is like, I'm about to send people out. Like followers are about to go. And what you need to know is the cost to following. Like if you're going to go on mission, it means we're going to go on mission. So he's, he's helping people grasp the concept of what it looks like to follow a Savior whose face is set to Jerusalem. So these would-be disciples that we saw last week apparently weren't willing to count the cost. We don't know for sure, but that seems to be the implication. But here in chapter 10, verse 1, apparently some were willing to count the cost, at least 72. And it was these 72 ordinary followers, notice no names, no clue who they are, not seeking glory, not seeking fame, not seeking honor. They're not trying to have some internet ministry. They're not trying to have some social media presence. They're not out there trying to bang down the door so their name can be higher on the billboard than Jesus' name. They're just nameless, 72, everyday, average, ordinary missionary disciples as they are following the Savior whose face is set to Jerusalem looks like this. Sign me up. I'm following this Savior. And they were sent, sent by the Savior ahead of Jesus, two by two, every town, every place where he himself was about to go. So what can we learn about the actions of missionary disciples? Thing number one is this, missionary disciples are sent. That's verse one. Missionary disciples are sent. Notice they are sent by Jesus. I'm sending you out, and they are sent before Jesus. Luke highlights this action of missionary discipleship in a unique way, which is unfortunately deadened um, in our English translations, this idea of to follow him, to be sent before him. And, he, uh, and Luke, in the original language, it all hangs on that word face. So if you go back into chapter 9, verse 51, we are told that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then if you read in verse 52... Luke tells us that Jesus sent his messengers ahead of him. And this is where the deadening of the English translation just sort of deadens, I think, the connection Luke is making because in the original language, that phrase, ahead of him, literally reads before his face. So you have Jesus whose face is set to Jerusalem, and he says, I'm sending you guys out before my face. And then when you come down to chapter 10, verse 1, you see Jesus is using this exact same language again, but now to the 72, the one whose face is set to Jerusalem, not only sent out the 12 before his face, but he also sent out the 12, uh, 72 ordinary followers ahead of him before his face. And so I think what Luke is doing is he's just giving us again these little verbal clues to help see that the one whose face is set to Jerusalem, this Jerusalem-type journey he's on means we have a Jerusalem-type discipleship. We're following a Jerusalem-type Savior. Our followership is a Jerusalem-type of followership. And Jerusalem followership, compassionate laboring, missionary disciple-making, is to recognize I'm sent by the Savior, before Him, out to those around me. I'm sent with the commission to represent the Lord. Missionary disciples are sent. But what we can also see in verses 2 through 7 where Jesus just seems to 
trip through a bunch of varying identifiers is this. Missionary disciples, the actions of a missionary disciple is this. They are prayerful. They are fearless. They're urgent proclaimers of peace with God. Prayerful, fearless, urgent proclaimers of peace with God. Again, if you remember, there's extreme overlap to what we said. So I'm going to say some things a bit more shortly and just say, if you want to hear these things more deeply, you can go back into the archives into a couple of weeks ago and you can hear us where we tweezed these ideas out a little bit more in Matthew chapter 9. But notice what he says here in verse 2. Missionary disciples are prayerful. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Back in Matthew's account of this event, what did we read? We sort of saw this formula, plentiful harvest plus few laborers. What does it equal? Earnest prayer. That's a kingdom formula. It's a kingdom law. It's a dynamic of following the Savior who is the king of this kind of gospel good news kingdom. Plentiful harvest plus few laborers equals earnest prayer. While it's true there is no lack of harvest, it's also true that there is a shortage of laborers. So what do missionary disciples do in the face of this need? Ask the Lord of the harvest to reverse the trend. Lord, this is a situation. Would you like make it not be the situation? That's the idea of earnest prayer. A good question to ask is, how am I ordering my days as a follower of Jesus to pray this prayer? I know of many who go to their phones and set a timer to go off at 10.02. Why? Because of this particular verse right here. Chapter 10, verse 2, plentiful harvest, few laborers, earnest prayer, alarm, bing, 10.02 a.m., goes off. Lord, would you send out laborers in the harvest? Maybe that's something for you to do. Go home, set an alarm, seven days a week to fire off at this time so I can align myself with what a missionary disciple does. Notice verse 3, what else does a missionary disciple do? They pray, but as they pray, verse 3, you go your way. So you're going and you're praying, you're praying and you're going. Along with this, notice as you go your way into verse 3, Jesus says this, by the way, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This is that eyes wide open reality we talked about a couple of weeks ago, if you remember. But remember, as we go out as lambs in the midst of wolves, we don't have to go in fear. Again, I encourage you to go listen to that sermon. We talked about the what? The fear we're not to have and the fear we are to have, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. But what we can say is this, empowered by the Holy Spirit, fearing God above the fear of man, we go as those whose trust is truly in God. So sent disciples are prayerful disciples, going disciples, fearless disciples. But notice in verse 4, a missionary disciple is also urgent. They have gospel urgency on the front burner. It's easy to have gospel urgency on the back burner. And when it's on the back burner, it's not so urgent, right? It's a bit of an oxymoron there. But gospel urgency is to just sort of recognize, yeah, like the rhythm 
of my life, the air that I breathe, the ecosphere I live in, the rhythms of my life, the mindset of my day is this. I'm a missionary in a place. What does it look like for me today to bear witness to Christ? I'm not saying this is like street corner placard, bullhorn, screaming at people kind of thing every single day. But it is to just sort of recognize that my everyday discipleship is everywhere followership. My discipleship follows me everywhere. And so when I'm in the home, what can I do to honor Christ? When I'm at work, what can I do to honor Christ? When I'm talking to my neighbor who's borrowing the tool, what can I do to honor Christ? When I'm by myself, what can I do to honor Christ? It's that kind of missionary mindset that I think Jesus is dialing into here when he's talking about this idea of going light, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. He says, listen, I want you to go undistracted, greet no one on the road. It's important to understand, like, this isn't Jesus saying go out and be rude. This isn't Jesus saying go out and be antisocial. Rather, what he's doing is this. He's saying the actions of missionary disciples looks like this. Gospel urgency is a mindset. It's a mindset that recognizes that because the king has arrived, his task is my focus. So some of us might be looking at this going, okay, I ain't got no money bag and I ain't got no knapsack, whatever a knapsack is. And the sandals only come out when I go hit the beach every year, one week on vacation. This has nothing to do with me. But actually it does. This idea of go light, go undistracted is to posture yourself to, to live in the stream where it's, listen, like there is a way to live in this world where I heap up so much stuff that the stuff distracts me and blunts the edge of urgency. Is that not true? I mean, do we really need that fifth pair of shoes? Do we really need that third vehicle? Do we have to have the second vacation home? These are the knapsacks and the sandals and the money bags that can weigh us down. I think it was in the words of the theologian um, uh, rapper Biggie Smalls, Mo Money, Mo Problems probably the only theological advice I would recommend from him. This is not me telling you to go and consume any other stuff by him. But you guys get it. Jesus, Jesus just knows us, does he not? Knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows, like, yeah, if we, if we start to, to tip off the side of the horse into, yeah, things and stuff and more this and more that, you know as well as I do in my own life, the more things I get, the more distracted I get. And it's easy to allow those things to blunt the gospel edge of urgency in my life. Because like, ah, I could, I don't know, but I've got this. I need to care for this. I need to counsel that. I need to do these things. Like, And then all of a sudden, gospel urgency takes a back seat. Gospel urgency is a mindset that recognizes that because the king has arrived, his task is my focus. And so it's the, it's the invitation to ask, like, is there something that needs to be dumped? Something that needs to be let go? Something that needs to be removed off my plate of concerns? That's good and right to be removed off my plate of concerns because I'm not trying to add more stuff, but I'm just trying to be intentional. And sometimes being intentional means removal. 
Like I need to slice this thing out of my life to make room for the thing that needs to be in my life. Gospel urgency. In other words, working a gospel harvest is like real life farming. When the season comes to plant seeds, guess what you do? You plant seeds. If planting season came in and Michael Bates was just hanging out in the coffee shop day in, day out, week in, week out, be like, dude, what on earth are you doing? This is planting season. Get out there, break the ground, get the seed in the ground, throw the fertilizer out there, do what you need to do, because there's going to come a time when it ain't planting season, and then you're going to be wondering why the harvest is so scarce, and it's because we didn't do what we were called to do as a farmer. Farmers don't fritter away their time with side tasks. Their sole focus is generous sowing of seed, and that's just the mindset of missionary disciples. Now, if you put all of this together, what you get is this culminating action in verses 5, 6, and 7. It's the culminating action of missionary disciples. What is this culminating action? It's the natural progression that leads to gospel proclamation. So I go prayerful, I go fearless, I go with urgency, and then I also go to the place where I begin to open mouth and speak. That's what we see starting in verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Now, it's important to understand that when Luke is recording this and when Jesus is saying this, this isn't Jesus saying, like, go into a home and say, hello. And if they say, hello back, it's like, woohoo, we're in. You know, we did our job. This isn't just like greetings on the lips of Jesus. We have to ask the question, has Luke defined what this kind of peace is that these disciples are proclaiming? And the answer is beyond a shadow of a doubt he has. It's important to understand that in Luke's gospel, the phrase peace be to this house is really shorthand for the gospel. And that's because Luke has already defined what he means by peace. A couple of examples go all the way back into Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we bump into Zechariah. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. And when Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, remember what he said. He prophesied that his son would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And this preparation involves giving, quote, knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And then he says, this forgiveness, said Zechariah, is this. Forgiveness of sins will guide our feet into the way of peace. Thus, peace is salvation and peace comes through the forgiveness of sins. So to show up into this home and say, peace be to this house, it's Luke shorthand for repent, believe. You can have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have salvation and know what it is to collapse into a right restored relationship with your creator. We can fast forward to Luke chapter 7, verses 48 through 50. And remember, Jesus has this interaction with the sinful woman. Do you remember this in Luke 7? Woman shows up, alabaster flask, cracks it open, ointment, tears on Jesus' feet, wiping it off with her hair. All the religious orthodox do-gooders are revolted because if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he would not come near her with a 10-foot pole. Jesus gives a parable that lays out their truth that they don't understand what forgiveness is. And then you remember Jesus looks 
at this woman and says what? Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. So in these examples, we learn that peace in Luke's gospel is peace with God. Peace with God comes through Jesus who brings forgiveness of sin. Thus to say peace be to this house is to verbally speak the gospel in this scenario. And it was this verbal message which the 72 ordinary disciples of Jesus were to declare with with his authority. Friends, this is the rinse and repeat cycle of missionary disciples. Compassionate laborers in the harvest, prayerfully, fearlessly, urgently proclaiming you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. But as we've seen before in Luke's gospel and as some of us have experienced in real life when we went and have done these very things, is that there are many who are very unhappy at hearing these things. And they're not happy to receive this good news. And while some do receive, others reject. And they reject this news only to face the consequences of gospel unbelief. And that's point number two. Consequences of gospel unbelief. But it's because there are consequences to gospel unbelief, that's why missionary disciples go. That's why somebody went to you and went to me. Somebody was sent. Somebody was prayerful. Somebody was fearless. Somebody was urgent. And somebody spoke, proclaimed. You could have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, we go because gospel unbelief will end in certain and awful judgment. That's what we see in verses 8 through 12. Gospel unbelief will end in certain and awful judgment. Just look at what Luke writes starting there in verse 8. 72 ordinary missionary disciples, here's what you need to know. You're going to enter a town and they might receive you. When you do this, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This idea of healing the sick and saying the kingdom of God has come near to you is this, these miraculous works are corroborating that in this time and in this place, the message they're saying is true. There's corroborating works going on there. Kingdom of God has come near to you. It's come near in the fact that Jesus is here. It's come near to you in the fact that, like, literally, the good news and message is like laying on your doorstep. But what you also need to know, verse 10, is that whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, in other words, by not receiving you, they have not received the gospel message. Here's what you need to do. You need to go into its streets and you need to say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. 
Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. That wiping of dust idea, just in a nutshell, it's, a, it's like a judgment kind of move. It's a physical way to represent that judgment is coming in light of your not receiving the gospel. But Jesus says to the 72, you need to reassure these people who've rejected the gospel, who are not receiving the gospel, this, that even though they are not receiving the gospel, it is still absolutely true that the kingdom of God has come near to them. Just because they're saying we don't want it doesn't mean it has not come near. Just because they're saying we don't want it doesn't mean it's not true. Then these words on the lips of Jesus, verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So as the 72 everyday disciples go working in the Father's harvest, some will receive them, and upon being received, they were to proclaim peace with God found in Jesus. Now, some are going to receive the gospel word, and they're going to be harvested into God's kingdom. These missionary disciples needed to know that some would not receive them nor receive their gospel message. And for those who do not receive, the seriousness of that decision is is immense. It's immense. To hear the gospel plainly yet not receive God's offer of peace in Jesus is to reject any possibility of God's forgiveness. And to reject God's offer of forgiveness, judgment will be inevitable and it will be unbearable. It's just insane what Jesus is saying, but it's true. What, if you want to bring what he's saying, the principle what he's saying, and bring it forward into like our modern day context, what he's saying is this. One of the most dangerous places that any of us could be is here right now listening to me talk about the gospel. There's a dangerous peril to the privilege of hearing the gospel. Some of us come, some of us go, wade in, wade out, waft in, waft out, hear the gospel, hear the gospel, hear the gospel, hear the gospel, never repent, never receive, never repent, never receive. And Jesus says the judgment, the sure and awful judgment that you saw that Sodom received for her sin will be compared and seem to be light in light of the judgment that will come to those who had the privilege of hearing it clearly and yet went, yeah, um, Jesus stuff. To reject God's offer of forgiveness, judgment will be inevitable, and it will be unbearable. Jesus sharpens the point of this when he says there in verse 12, it will be more bearable on that day. What day? The future day of judgment. Usually in your Bible, when the Bible refers to that day, you'll notice it'll be the capital D day. And on that day, it's going to be more bearable for Sodom than for that town or for that individual who does not receive God's offer of peace in his Savior. Notice that in saying this, Jesus is making a lesser to greater argument. He's saying, see Sodom, see what's to come. But what's astonishing and what's eye-opening about verse 12 
is that the lesser judgment against Sodom is so stinking great that it boggles to mind to think of the certain and awful judgment that awaits for those who say, I do not believe the gospel. Like the judgment, righteous, right, just judgment that came from a holy God against a sinful people in Sodom. If you go back in Genesis and read it, it's, it's, it's sharp. It's not light. It's heavy. And Jesus is saying it's going to be like this compared to what's to come for those who've heard. So does this mean, hmm, well, I don't want people to be there, so if I just don't go tell people about the gospel, then maybe they'll be off the hook. When we were talking, Charles, I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember when we were in London? Our missionary who serves over there says that as he's going around talking to various churches, there's a Baptist church over there where the pastor operates on that assumption. The missionary went there and said, like, why, like, you know, like, hey, how can I help? I'm here to serve. What can we do to see just like, you know, a, 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 this kind of actionable idea take root in the hearts and lives of the Jesus family in this particular church to go out? And in so many words, the pastor said, actually, like we, like we avoid that. We don't do that. Why? Because like, well, I don't want people to know. I don't want that perilous privilege of the gospel coming to them. So that way that, right, that the, the, it'll be a little bit lesser. And the missionary is just like, what in the world? Like, this is a pastor. This is like someone like me who's leading his congregation in this way, and it broke the heart of that missionary, and it breaks our heart. Like, that's, that's, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying judgment is going to come. And it will be awful, and it will be unbearable, and it will be certain. So that's why we go. We want no place left. We want meaningful access to the gospel. That's our part. And that's why we go. Now, at first glance, you, you hear me say this, you hear this on the lips of Jesus, and it just seems overly harsh. It feels insane. After all, is someone merely not receiving a message worthy of a greater Sodom-like judgment? Like, surely someone, some of us here are just like wrestling out there in our mind. Like, right? You said a message, you didn't receive a message, and like they're going to receive greater <laughs> Sodom-like judgment? Like, how, what is that about? But, but here's the thing. Notice what Jesus says in verse 16. Jesus, to summarize verse 16, is saying this. Yeah. Yes, to reject a gospel message is worthy of a greater Sodomite judgment because to reject gospel proclamation is to ultimately reject me. It's ultimately to reject God. You're not just merely rejecting a message. That's Jesus' final point there. Do you see this? Verses 13 through 16. When he says, woe to you, woe to you. Verse 13, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. So Chorazin and Bethsaida is a city. Tyre and Sidon are cities. Jesus was doing certain miracles and teaching in places like Chorazin and Bethsaida. They had the, the privilege of seeing these things firsthand. But Jesus says, you saw these things and yet you did not receive the gospel message. And he says, if 
the mighty works done in you had been done in a pagan town like Tyre and a pagan town like Sidon. They would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. Then he goes to Capernaum. Capernaum was Jesus' home base of operations. Jesus did so much stuff there in Capernaum. People could come up and like lay hold of Jesus. They could touch Jesus. His physical words from his vocal cords are vibrating through the air into their ear. They heard Jesus. They saw him face to face. And he says, are you guys going to be exalted to heaven? No, because of your refusal to repent and believe, you shall be brought down to Hades. So here's the principle. Here's the truth. 72 ordinary missionary disciples. The one who hears you is actually hearing me. And the one who rejects you is actually rejecting me. And the one who rejects me, you need to know, is ultimately rejecting him who sent me, the Father. So we have to understand that as missionary disciples, some will hear and some will reject. Our invitations to come and discover the blessings of peace with God to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will turn from sin and turn to Jesus for forgiveness of sin and some will refuse. But the thing is this, saints, the thing is this, this gospel message we proclaim isn't of our own making. Like we're not going out saying, yeah, you know, we're asking you to become better churchgoers. We're not saying we're asking you to come, become, be better Bible readers. We're not asking you to come and be better prayers. We're not asking you to come to give money. We're not asking you to come to Sunday school. We're not asking you to come and shove your head full of knowledge. We're asking you to come and repent and believe and bow your heart, your life, your soul, your mind, your strength before the one who's worthy of all these things. That's not because we think they need this. It's because Jesus has said this is the way of salvation. And so when someone rejects this message, they are ultimately rejecting the Lord of this message. And Jesus says, the one who rejects me is rejecting him who sent me. Here's what we're going to do. I want us to pray. And we're going to circle back around, Charles, if you want to go ahead and come up, brother. But I want you guys just to hear this. As we said last week, everyday discipleship is everywhere followership. And in his instructions to the 72, Jesus has just laid out the rhythms of that followership. And so the way we're going to end this morning, and I think it's up on the screen behind me. Do you want to flip that over to the next, next slide? There you go. The way we're going to end this morning is by praying for deepening growth as missionary disciples, praying for one another. Lord, would you just grow me deeper in what it looks like to be this? I, I want to see these echoes, these rhythms, these movements more true in my life. I'm not asking you to go from zero to 100 right now, but you can go maybe from zero to one. Like, Lord, would you just grow me in like what it means to like go one to two in these things? Would you grow me in what it looks like to be prayerful for laborers in the harvest? Grow me in what it looks like to be fearless, fearing God more than I fear man? Would you help me, Lord, to have an urgency to my days? Would you help me, Lord, to be a proclaimer of peace, to open my mouth? What you need to know is that the kind of training we've been talking about in regards to these things, like we're not asking you just like to hear this and go and figure it out. We're going to put training on your belt, and that training is coming in the end of March going to be a lot of iterations of this and so while we're praying we're going to be praying and then we're going to be training as we're training we're going to be praying and then we're going to be goers and that's coming around the 
been pretty darn soon. So here's my encouragement. Turn. Pray.